get to do communion and baptism uh, in the same service. And one of the things I love about baptism is, is if you could just take a week or an afternoon and just reflect upon baptism and, and what it signifies, what it pictures both in Christ, both personally. I mean, it is so rich. Uh, it, it, just the depths of the rich of that ordinance. Is, and it's so, I love it that the, the two things that Christ gave the church, baptism and Lord's Supper, are so simple yet so profound. I mean, even just the act of of trusting that Randy's going to, you know, pick Laura back up out of the water uh, demonstrates what faith is. You know, it's a confidence. It's a resting in in that person. That you're putting their whole your whole confidence in, uh, well, the person who's baptizing you. Christ has baptized us with the force into his spirit, and we know that he's going to raise us into eternal life. And we have a sure confidence. As, as confident as Laura was that Randy's going to pick her back up out of the water, we have that same confidence uh, that Christ is going to raise us um, from the dead. Um, but you know, with that, with, with knowing that, it's crazy to me that no matter if the times are good or if the times are bad, the world is consistently trying to get us to put our confidence not in the Lord, but in mankind, in the, in the human flesh, in the ways of the world. It's always seeking for us to make flesh our strength. And the question is, is does man really ever deliver up to its promise? Well, if there was ever a time in American history that seemed to, it was 1920s, the early 1920s. Of course, the late 1920s, you know, got a little bit, went a little south. And for the next two decades, it was pretty bad. But early 1920s seemed to deliver to that, pro, uh, that, that promise. Uh, coming off victory on a global stage in World War I, the economy was just booming. It was roaring. And, and the people were... Were, were buying uh, the lies of the world. They were, they were putting their confidence in everything uh, that mankind had to offer. But there was an author, his name was F. Scott Fitzgerald, and he highlighted the futility of putting your faith, putting your confidence in mankind, and he showed the bleak and despairing end uh, of that mindset in his work, The Great Gatsby. In, the focal, uh, in that work, the focal character, his name is Jay Gatsby, and you hear of his story through the narrator named Nick. Well, Jay grew up poor, and after serving some time in the military, uh, he left the Midwest uh, to New York City, and he began to accumulate wealth, and he did. He accumulated a good bit of wealth in New York City and had these just extravagant parties uh, over in West Egg. And he was always striving for the better of life. And to anyone, if you looked at Jay Gatsby and the story, if you looked at him from the outside, you would have think that he had it. Yet as the story goes on, you see the joyless discontent that he has. As he's sitting out on his back porch, he's looking across the pond to a little green light on a dock. And it was a green light that signified much more than just a green light, but it signified a wealthier life with more prestige, with more power, and with a woman he loved, but he was just, she was just always out of reach. And in the end... In the story, Gatsby meets an untimely death. He's murdered. And at his funeral, there's only two people that show up. His dad, who he had disowned, he actually had changed his name from Gats to Gatsby. And then the narrator, Nick, who had bought the lie along with him. And Fitzgerald tells the story a little bit more, and he says after the funeral that Nick went home uh, back to Midwest. He left New York City, and the book ends with Nick saying this. Gatsby believed in the green light the pleasure-filled future that year by year recedes from us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. 
Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and one fine morning. So we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. In other words, the future that they were striving for never comes. They're like boats against the current going backwards. Gatsby and Nick put their confidence in the world, and it left them out to dry. His circumstances dictated his joy and his life. It was never enough. It was never enough. Jeremiah prophesied in a similar time, um, less promising than the Warring Twenties. I mean, Judah was about to go into exile. But people were putting their confidence in the things of this world rather than the Lord just the same. They trusted in politics. They trusted in their health. They trusted in their wealth. And they were looking to these things to give them greater security and protection from future harm. And they were fooled. They were fooled, as we so often are. The very things that they had put their confidence in, it failed them. First, they had this um, political alliance with Egypt that just didn't work out. Then a plague came, and then their wealth went away. But Jeremiah was trying to draw their attention to the only sure confidence, the Lord himself. Exile was imminent. It was going to happen. The prophets had gone unheeded. They did not listen to their warnings, and they were going to be taken away. But the circumstance of exile did not have to control the quality of life that the people of Judah would have to live. And if you think about it, that's the context of Jeremiah 29, 11. Jeremiah just says, hey, you know, you're about to be in exile for 70 years. You need to set up camp in Babylon, have homes, get married, have kids. For I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Their circumstances were horrible, but the quality of life was above that. And that's what Jeremiah is trying to say. So let's listen to his message. It's Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 through 8. Um, it's going to be on the screens. You can open your Bibles and look there. It says this, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert that shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Jeremiah's message is simple. It was simple then and it's simple today. It's this. This world leaves you out to dry. But if you make the Lord your confidence, you will know abundant life that is not controlled by your circumstances. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would speak to us today. I pray that you would help us to hear your word, to believe your word, and to apply your word to our lives. Lord, may you be magnified in the person of Jesus Christ. And I pray that your spirit would illuminate our eyes and our hearts and our minds that we may know and enjoy you all the more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we've alluded to, this world offers many false hopes. 
and they all fail you. As I was talking about, they, Judah had embraced many hopes. First, they had that alliance with Egypt. Well, any time that the people of God went down to Egypt after the Exodus, it was bad news. I mean, any time Egypt's involved, it's typically not good. People are going into sin. But when the time of trial came, when Babylon showed up, Egypt was unable to come to their aid. And even if they were able to make it, they would not have been strong enough if they had gotten there. Because Judah didn't understand, they didn't believe what the prophets had been telling them. They didn't believe that the trial that was at their doorstep was a result of their idolatry. Judah had abandoned their Lord, their God, and he was bringing judgment on them in exile. And they looked, and this is important, Judah looked for a political solution to a spiritual problem of the heart. And it did not work. It didn't work then, and it doesn't work now. And then the health, the health of their young men and women were taken away by a plague that God had sent. These people who thought they had years in front of them were deceived and like that. Those years that they thought they had vanished in death. And then lastly, what they had left of the diminished wealth from the days of Solomon, which was much, much less, but still great. It was no security either. The people would see their wealth, the stuff that they worked hard to save, build up over time, store away. They saw it all taken away by Nebuchadnezzar before their very eyes. Politics, wealth, and health all proved to be false hopes. And today it's just the same. Politics offer the false hope of deliverance. I mean, every four years we hear this message. They offer the false hope of deliverance. Health, the false hope of immortality. Wealth, the false hope of security. And none of these things are bad in and of themselves. And Christians should engage in them and steward them well for the glory of God. But none of these things, nothing, even, the list is much longer than the list of three that I just threw out there, but none of the things of this earth, nothing that man has to offer is worth putting your confidence in. Because when you do that, when you put your confidence in man, when you put your trust in human flesh and what mankind has to offer, no matter what it is, good, bad, otherwise, in the end, it leaves you in the bleakness of despair. We become shrubs in the desert, Jeremiah says, that see no good come, parched of joy and isolated in fear. Fitzgerald pictured this truth in the 1920s. But centuries earlier, Shakespeare did as well. He wrote this play called Macbeth. And Macbeth tells the story of a king who lived for this world. He listened to some false teaching and he walked in wickedness and he, and he strove for political power. Again, he put his confidence in man. And he too was left despairing at the end. With his own death nearing, Macbeth hears that his wife has killed herself. And he sits there in sorrow and he goes, she shouldn't have died today. She had more things to say in the future. And then he goes and says this. He says, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools of the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player 
that struts and frets its hour upon the on the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. When we put our confidence in mankind, that is where we end up. Despairing like this shrub in a desert that sees nothing good because our perspective is so skewed. And we view life then as this meaningless tale told by an idiot. Jeremiah, in his love for his people, and the Spirit and His love for you is warning us today of the fate of those who put their trust in mankind. Jeremiah and the Spirit of God through Jeremiah is telling us that our life is more than our circumstances. It's more than what we see. He's telling us of the abundant life that's offered in Jesus Christ, in the Lord. That's why he says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. It's not just what the Lord can bring about. The Lord himself is our trust or our confidence. He is, and then he, speaking of the man who tr whose trust is the Lord, he is like a tree planted by water. It's reminiscent of Psalm 1, or Psalm 1 is reminiscent of this, however it worked out, that sends out its roots by the stream. And does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Jeremiah wants us to know that the Lord is sure. First and foremost, the Lord is sure. He's worthy of our confidence. And He gives abundant life that is not dependent on what is happening in the world, what's happening in your life. A tree by a stream of water, if you look at this picture, a tree, a tree by the stream of water possesses life that is not tied to its surroundings. If you can look in this picture, there's desert around. This is actually in El Paso, Texas, by the Rio Grande. And this tree is just vibrant because this tree, its confidence, though, is not in the rain because it doesn't rain much in El Paso. Its confidence is in the river. And the river water that provides inner refreshment constantly helps the tree overcome the powers of heat and the powers of drought. And those who trust in the Lord experience the same freedom. Freedom from the circumstances dictating how you live, how much joy you have, what quality of life you have. Because like the river, the Lord never leaves you out to dry. Everything else will your family, everything. In the end, they all make bad gods. There's only one. And he sustains you in the trial with hope and joy. Taylor and I have been working on a garden. I say Taylor and I. I, I did very little uh, other than some pretty hard work at the very beginning to get it set up. But Taylor has been working in this garden, and we didn't know anything that we are doing, so we over-fertilized some of the plants or something like that. And our tomato plant, one of them that raised up, its leaves didn't turn green, or they turned a different color. And we were like, oh, this ain't good. You know, we, know, we don't know much, but we know that leaves are meant to be green. And, and thankfully, uh, nature has this way of kind of, I guess, overcoming some of the mistakes that we make. 
But we knew that when that leaf turned away from green to some yellowish color, we were da- our hopes of tomatoes on that plant were dashed. We thought, well, this plant's not going to live. It's not going to make it. We, we, it we, we were discouraged by that plant. But thankfully, like I said, the, the plant is going to produce some tomatoes, not as much as some of our other ones, but it will produce some. But as a green leaf signifies the vibrancy and the hope for life, the hope for fruit that is to come, the Lord blesses those who put their confidence, who make him their confidence with a vibrant joy and a hope that even the heat of the trial cannot take away. I mean, 2020 has turned the heat up a little bit, has it not? I mean, that's to say the least. I mean, I feel like every month there's something else that's going on that's, that's just making uh, life feel like there's just this heat and there's this drought that's happening. But for Christians, that is those who have made Jesus their confidence, those who have put their faith in Christ, this is an opportunity for us to show the world that vibrant life, that abundant life, is found in Christ. This is not a time for us to wither in fear. The world needs to see in us that abundant life has nothing to do with our circumstances at all. At all. But abundant life is life with Christ. For us, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. So even if the worst happens and we die, our hope and joy remain unshaken because Jesus, the giver of life, sustains us even in death. For he is the resurrection and the life. Those who come to him shall never die. We fall asleep and we are in the presence of of the Lord. As John MacArthur says, the worst thing that can happen to us is the best thing that can happen to us because we are with the Lord. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And He sustains us with this joy throughout our lives, but He also makes your life glorious, even in the year of drought. For a tree that bears fruit, its fruit is its glory. You know, an apple tree that doesn't produce apples is it glorious, or nor is a tomato plant that doesn't produce tomatoes. The fruit of the plant is what makes the plant distinct, what makes it glorious. And Christ, in the same way, he says that he works in his disciples, those who have made him their confidence, those who have repented of sin and believed in Jesus Christ, he works in us by his Spirit that we might produce fruit unto the glory of God. In fact, a lack of fruit, he says, indicates that one only has the appearance of life. A lip service faith that is not genuine. These people will not stand the test of heat nor trial. Like a shrub in the desert without root or without fruit, they will wither and fall away. But when you make the Lord your confidence, you bear the glorious fruit of growth in Christ's likeness and a life lived for the good of others. That means you love others, which requires sacrifice. If you're going about your life without sacrificing for others, you're not loving others. Personal liberty does not give us license to disregard others. 
We love others, meaning that we put them before ourselves. And then we do justice, which at the bare minimum means that we lift up our voice for the oppressed. And we seek to bring righteousness in the culture. And we make disciples, meaning that we proclaim the gospel that saved us to others who need to hear the good news of salvation by God's grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ. We love others, we do justice, we make disciples. And as we're growing in Christ-likeness, that glorious fruit produced within us by the Holy Spirit, as we live by faith, begins to reveal itself in our lives, and it gives our lives an abiding significance that persists throughout all of eternity. In the drought-filled years of this earth, on this earth, the good news is, is that Jesus can restore meaning to that which has fallen into meaningless. So when we read things like what Macbeth said, now his life may have signified nothing, but in Christ we are confident that nothing is meaningless and that he is working in all of circumstances and that if we come to faith in Christ, he is living in us by his spirit and he is producing something, uh, uh, an eternal weight of glory in us in both the trials and the good times and he is giving significance to that which has fallen into insignificance. It's like this race car. Now, if I would have gone back and driven this car, it would not be glorious. You would not be seeing a picture of this on this the screen today. It has no glory or significance in and of itself. This car has an abiding significance in your minds because Dale Earnhardt drove this car. This was Dale's car. He made it great. This car now possesses an abiding significance. And if you have a lot of money, I think it's on auction for a COVID um, fundraiser or something like that. But it was, it's not because it's a great car, though it probably is. But it was because he was in the driver's seat. And when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we give him control. We surrender to him as Lord. And we live by faith according to his word, both his warnings, which may not seem relevant at the time, and his promises, which may seem very inconvenient at the time. We live by faith in his word so that it is no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us, and his presence or lack thereof is then known by the fruit that we bear. So how do we respond to this passage? What are we to to do in response to Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 8? Well, the first and most glaring application is this. Make Jesus your confidence. John 7 says this, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Let me say this. If you're living for this world thinking that you'll be enough before a holy God, let me tell you something. Let me warn you. The Bible describes you as cursed. And there's really nothing you can do to get out of it. But the good news is, is that Jesus can and Jesus did. He lived the sinless Life to fulfill God's righteous standard. He died the sinner's death in your place. Our sin, my sin, your sin, put Jesus on the cross. 
and he bore the punishment in our place, satisfying the wrath of a holy God. And he bore the curse of death and burial, and he rose victorious from the grave on the third day, giving eternal life to those who turn from their sins and put their confidence, their trust, their faith in Jesus. Because what we do when we come to Jesus in saving faith, we recognize our sin and it, in relation to a holy God, and we tremble with fear because we know that there is no hope for righteousness in me. And we look to the cross, and we look to Jesus, and we go, Christ is my only hope, my only confidence. He is my righteousness. He's, he's all I got. I, I need Jesus. So you come to him in faith, no, trusting that he died as your substitute and rose again from the grave, that his life now might be your life. His, our sin, he took upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And we, we come to him in that way. When we come to him in genuine faith that makes Jesus our confidence, God never, ever, ever leaves you out to dry. He is with you always. I love the Gospel of Matthew. When I first got here, we were preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew begins with Emmanuel and then the promise of God saying, I am with you always. The Gospel of Matthew begins and ends with the promise that God is with us. And if you are in Christ, you've come to him in saving faith, you know that God is with you and he is not going to leave you out to dry. But if we are in Christ, however, the temptation to put our confidence in man, it still resides within us. We're still quick to look to the things of this world for hope and for confidence. As I've been just preparing for this message for a while, there was, I was working on a message just in case that, you know, we could, I would need to step in pretty quickly. And Randy, you know, asked me um, if I'd want to preach it this week. So I've been thinking about this message for about a month and a half now. Uh, and I'm thankful to share the, in the conviction with other people because I've been wrestling with it for six weeks now and it's been killing me. And I know as I've been wrestling with this just how sinful I can be. How often I look to things of this world for, for my confidence or my hope. How much I'm putting trust in man rather than in the Lord. And as I've been wrestling, I was, just, I was wondering, how, do we, how can we tell? How can we tell where we're living, trusting in man rather than trusting in the Lord? And I think this passage prompts us to ask what's causing fear in our life. What's causing you to fear? What's causing anxiety? If you look at the blessing, the blesses the man, the two things that the person does not do is he doesn't fear when he comes and he is not anxious in the year of drought. So fear and anxiety seem to be indicators. So what's causing that fear? Are your thoughts consumed with what's going to happen in November on some Tuesday? Are you fearful about the future of America for your kids or grandkids? Are you afraid of contracting COVID-19 and dying? Or are you anxiously worrying because you cannot control your kids and who they're around? Are they social distancing and you just feel like you're out of control with this whole virus thing? 
Are your thoughts filled with anxiety over the shaky state of the financial market? Which again brings us back to potentially November. I mean, we know, we know that Jesus is sovereign over all kingdoms. We know that to live as Christ is, and to die is gain. And we know that earthly wealth is fleeting and deceptive. And there's greater wealth that far surpasses anything, all of the, what is on this earth put together and found in Jesus Christ. We know all of these things, but the question still stares us in the face and asks, are you anxious? Are you fearful? You know these things, but are you believing them and living them out? Or are you putting your confidence in man? And I can tell you, every day, it's a wrestle. Every morning, every look at social media, every glance at the news, it is a wrestling point of faith. Are you trusting in the world? Are you making human flesh your strength? Or are you trusting in the Lord? Is the Lord your confidence? Because our fear and our anxious worrying are gracious reminders to us. I mean, it's, it's our sin. It's, it's the conviction that we feel when we notice those things. It's God's grace towards us because it's a warning sign to us. And it points out areas where we are putting our confidence in man. And when we see that, we can stop the misplacement of our confidence and put our faith in the Lord and Jesus. And when we do that, we'll know the blessed life that we're talking about. And as we put our faith in Jesus, we then plant ourselves in the Lord. Jesus says this in John 15. He says, Abide in me, and I am you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Abiding in Christ, planting yourself in the Lord, is the means that God has ordained by which that we live gloriously. And this is both personal and corporate. What I mean by that is this is both personal and that we spend time in the Word. Jesus is the Word. So we spend time personally in God's Word and in prayer, abiding in Christ, planting ourselves in the Scriptures, and we corporately participate and plant ourselves in the body of Christ, in the fellowship of the physical gathering of God's saints and His people. We plant ourselves both in His Scripture and we plant ourselves both in the corporate relationship in the local church, the body of Christ, for us, Meadowbrook. So for us to think that the Christian life is an hour on Sunday mornings is utter foolishness. And then for us to think that we can live the Christian life without that hour on Sunday mornings is also foolishness. We need both. We need to abide in the Word of God, and we need to abide in the body of Christ. We need to plant ourselves in the Lord. And then do not fear. Psalm 23, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Fear is not of the Lord. Fear is not a virtue. 
We are not to live with fear as our guide. The word, the living word of God directs our steps. And the path of righteousness is so, so good. But let me tell you, the path of righteousness is not safe. It's good. It's real good. But it isn't safe. It wasn't safe for Jesus. It wasn't safe for Paul. It wasn't safe for Peter or Augustine or Luther or Calvin or Spurgeon. The path of righteousness is not safe. So we do not fear and we live out God's word with courage knowing no matter how much the heat is turned up for we know that to live is Christ and to die is the game. The worst thing that can happen to us is the best thing that can happen to us. And I shared this a while back on a Wednesday night, but I'm going to share it again today. When we think of to live as Christ, to die is gain, that's easy to kind of say and to think and just hear the sentence and go, okay, that makes sense. But what that means is that if I die today, though I don't want that to happen because there's some tragic results that could you know, potentially happen in the lives of my family, but if I die today and I miss Joanna's wedding, I miss Mason playing football, I miss the birth of my third child. I miss all of it. Miss being a granddad. Miss walking down the aisle dancing with my daughter at her wedding. If I miss all of that, to live as Christ, to die as gain. To depart and to be with the Lord is better. Do I believe that? Do you believe that? Fear, which we all often fear, may point to some weaknesses. But we can live out God's word with courage because we know that even in the valley of the shadow of death, our good shepherd is with us. And we can not only not fear, but we can endure in fruitful living, which is the last application. Galatians 6. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. When seasons of trial come, it's easy for us to give up fruitful living. We excuse sin. We cease uh, ministering to others. We withhold love because... It's just not a, it's not a good time right now, or whatever. There's a thousand of excuses that we can make. What I'm asking you is don't, don't let the seasons of drought, the seasons of heat, rob you of the joy, the abundance of glorious living in Jesus Christ. We can endure in that kind of living, even in the worst of situations. Send your roots to the stream of living water. Plant yourself in His Word and in His church and not fearing any evil that might come, endure in fruitful living unto the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would help us. Having spoken this once, having prepared 
for a while. Oh, God, help us. Help me. God, oh, how desperately short I fall. How frustratingly quick I am to put my confidence in man and to turn my heart away from you. Oh, God, help us to live by faith. Help us to make you our confidence, for only you are sure. Help us, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.